Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. If you remember last week, we talked through the conversion of Saul. Saul the Pharisee had a face-to-face, come-to-Jesus moment on the road to Damascus. and had a wonderful conversation with uh, Jesus. And Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responded in that conversation, who are you, Lord? But remember the second question he asked? What do you want me to do? Right? And so there in that moment, Saul commits his life and receives Christ as Lord. And he goes into Damascus because Jesus told him, go and wait. And I will tell you what you need to do. And so that's where we pick up with our story today. Starting in verse 10. Let's read verses 10 through 16. Now, I'm just going to clarify, nothing's going to be up on the screen. So I want you to settle in with your eyes into God's word today. And in your Bibles or on your device, and then really receive what he wants to say. But read along with me, verses 10 through 16. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias, oh, I'm sorry, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So picking up right where we left off, he, God speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. And I know we've spoken to a different Ananias earlier in our study of Acts, not the same person. Remember that person deceived the Lord, and he was condemned, unfortunately, him and his wife. So this is a different Ananias. But I want you to first notice the difference in how Ananias responded to God. How did he respond to God? He said, here I am, Lord. And I want you to put that in comparison to how Saul responded in his meeting with God. Saul said, who are you, Lord? Here Ananias is saying, here I am, Lord. So you see the difference. When we give our life to God, we need to settle in to be able to know, recognize, and listen to the voice of God. Jesus taught multiple times, but in John 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So settling in and understanding God's voice, we need to listen and be available. In a very similar response, Isaiah would say the same thing, right? God would ask, who will go for us? And Isaiah responded, here I am, Lord, send me. So when God wants to do something amazing, the assignment is going to be made known. The path will be made clear. And the clarity of the instruction will be exact. That's a promise from God. Now, we may not have the immediate answer as to what we're going to do, But God's instruction will be very clear. What was his instruction to Abraham? 
go over there. That's very clear and it's very exact. But it didn't have all the details that we want as humans, don't, doesn't it? And here he told Saul, go into Damascus and wait and you'll receive instruction. The way is clear. The instruction was clear, exact. And here he tells Ananias the same. And I know a lot of times we don't understand. And that's okay. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a quote-unquote famous portion of Scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what? Lean not, lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge Him. And what? He will make your paths straight. We just need to trust in the Lord. So God declared to Ananias what he had already shown Saul. Isn't that beautiful? God had already spoken to Saul while Saul was waiting. Saul was praying. Saul was fasting. We know he was blind. He wasn't eating. He wasn't drinking. He was there, and now we're told, praying, seeking the Lord in this newfound faith that he had in Jesus. And God spoke to Saul in that moment, you will be visited by a, a man by the name of Ananias. And now God tells Ananias, you need to go and visit a man named Saul. And he's ready for you. He's prepared to meet you. But it doesn't mean that what God calls you to do will be easy. Ananias makes it very clear what was going on in his mind, didn't he? Um, God, this guy Saul... Is that the one that's persecuting the church, ravaging the church, committing Christians to prison, if not commissioning their death, and you want me to go and visit him? God said, yeah, <laughs> because that's what I need you to do. But it doesn't mean what God calls us to do is easy. It can be very scary what he asks us to do, especially the unknown circumstances, but God comforts Ananias and he lets them know this man is my chosen vessel. And I'm asking you to be my voice, my hands to go and welcome him into the family of God. Ananias was walking into a situation that could have landed him in prison or even dead. But don't forget, Saul was commissioned to go and spread the gospel and as God made clear to Ananias, he is going to suffer for my name's sake. And as we will study throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see multiple occasions where that promise comes true. He's not punishing Saul for his previous life. It's just that when we live in Christ, there will be hardship. There will be trials. There may be suffering. There may be and will be persecution. It's a promise from God, so it's expected. But we have peace knowing we're doing what God has called us to do. So let's continue on. Verses 17 through 19. So Ananias, trusting in God, departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So we get that consecration, that witness 
to Saul's faith in Jesus. Remember, baptism doesn't save you. That's not what is being said here. Saul already confessed his sin before the Lord because God knew. He received Christ as his Savior in that moment. And he's just waiting for that commission. Sometimes we have to wait, don't we? It's not always going to be immediate. It's not always going to be clear. Sometimes we just have to wait. But here's the beauty of what we just read. What's the first thing Ananias does when he walks into the house of this persecutor, this insolent opponent? He says what? Brother. Brother Saul. There is an immediacy of acceptance into the family of God. There was no semblance given that Saul and everything that he had done prior, he had to work himself back into good graces with the people, right? Ananias had that comfort. Ananias had that knowledge of God that he gave him to say, no, this is my chosen vessel. So immediately you can accept him as your brother. It's a beautiful word. And this was all orchestrated by God. Paul would later speak to, to the fact of his life in Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul understands everything about who I am, what I went through, that meeting on the road, and everything I'm doing now to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ is of and through God. Now, a lot of us might go, well, well, darn, that kind of diminishes the role of Ananias, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Ananias disappears from Scripture. But that doesn't diminish his role in what God had called him to do and how he used him in that moment. Because as we read, let's not forget, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. He had been following God. He was a trusted disciple follower of Jesus Christ. He was living his life as he was supposed to, as a man of God. And what, what can we surmise? That he continued to do so. Maybe not in the forefront of scripture, but at least in Damascus, he continued to serve God the way God needed him. So it doesn't diminish the faith and courage and obedience of Ananias, but only gives credence to the providence of God, his saving grace and his divine plan for mankind. Guys, here's what I want you to understand. It just takes one individual, one person, to be obedient to God's call. Because what would Saul, Paul, accomplish? Spoiler alert. He preaches the gospel and thousands and thousands are saved. Churches upon churches upon churches are established throughout the region because one man answered God's call to go and be obedient. It just takes one. Let me read you a quick story. You may have heard this, but if you have, don't, don't tell the ending. Raise your hand if you have heard of Edward Kimball. Excellent. Here's a good story. Edward Kimball was an ordinary man who taught Sunday school at his church. He sensed God's leading to share the gospel with a young shoe salesman. He found this young man in the storage room, and Kimball shared God's love 
And the salesman received Christ. The year was 1858. And the salesman's name? Dwight L. Moody. More commonly known as D.L. Moody. Right? Who would become one of the greatest evangelists in human history. We could stop there, connect it to Ananias and Saul, and move on with our day. But we're not going to because the story is not over. Several years later, when Moody was preaching, a pastor named Frederick B. Meyer was deeply stirred by Moody's preaching. And as a result, he started a nationwide preaching ministry. And a college student named J. Wilbur Chapman accepted Christ after listening to one of Meyer's sermons. Chapman became a pastor and started holding evangelistic outreaches. One of the assistants he'd hired was Billy Sunday, a former baseball player. Sunday went on to become a powerful evangelist, reaching thousands and thousands of people with the gospel in the early 20th century. One of Billy Sunday's evangelistic crusades was held in Charlotte, North Carolina. And afterward, a group of enthusiastic businessmen said, we want to do more, more outreach. And so they asked another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and preach. And during Mordecai's revival, one of Mordecai's revival meetings, a young farm boy made his way down and gave his life to Christ. Anybody know the name of that young man? Billy Graham. What an amazing story. And if you follow that line, what are we talking about? One individual's obedience. And I'm not just talking about Edward Kimball. But Edward Kimball and D.L. Moody, F.B. Meyer, and all these others down the line, and we know what Billy Graham did, and the thousands upon thousands upon thousands that received Christ through his ministry, who are now continuing on today because of that influence, being obedient. Why did I ask you the question I asked you in the beginning? Keep reflecting on that. Ananias was obedient to go to Saul, accept him as a brother in the Lord, and pray for him to receive the Holy Spirit. And that's God, all God asks us to do. Simple obedience. But we need to humble ourselves first. Continue to seek the Lord. Submit to his authority. And be obedient to what he calls us to do. And then what? Leave the results up to him. Because it's up to him what he wants to do through other people's lives. You don't get to dictate that. You just open your mouth and be obedient to continue to spread the gospel. And as history has proven, watch what happens. And then just carry on and be obedient. Let's look at verses 20 through 25. So it said, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And verse 20 says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. By proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. 
But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Saul immediately proclaims the truth about Jesus. Remember how I asked you, what does God want you to do? Now, while you wait maybe for some specific instruction, which is okay, that's okay. Don't forget you've already been given instruction that you need to fulfill immediately, just as Saul did. You submit your life to Christ, you already have the commission to do what? Preach the gospel. Share your faith. Proclaim the name of Jesus. You don't need to wait for somebody to come to you, lay their hands on you, call you brother or sister. Just go and do. If you have submitted your life to Christ, go and do. Period. Do you need to be a preacher? Come on, give me an answer. No, you don't. You don't need to be an official preacher. You just need to be a husband, be a wife, be a journeyman, be a teacher, be this, be an be a, a, a auto a sales mechanic. Or, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact title. You know, be, a, be a woodworker. Be a teacher's aide. Be a student. And do what? Share the love of Christ. Love others and let them know of hope, the hope they have in Jesus. Remember, Saul went to proclaim the truth about Jesus. Not his truth, not his perception of truth, but the truth. Remember last week we talked about how he was going his way and he had a meeting with the way because Jesus would proclaim, I am the way, the truth and the life. So what do we proclaim? The absolute truth that Jesus is the son of God. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven. Amen. Amen. That proof comes by the validity of Scripture and His radical life transformation. Have you had a radical life transformation? The simple answer is if, you're, if you've committed your life to Christ, if you've received Him as Lord, then the answer is yes. Does it need to be this Hollywood version of some radical transformation moment? No, it doesn't. But it is one of the greatest miracles we can witness today. A life transformed by faith in Christ. Saul can claim this because not only did he have that face-to-face moment with the risen Christ, but his study of scripture as a Pharisee now validates this claim through his greater renewed worldview. Remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Smartest of the smart, however you want to call it. He knew scripture. How many outside of Jesus Christ are familiar with the Bible? Probably quite a few. Many have heard the name of Jesus. They may know stories from the Bible and they've never stepped foot in church. They may know of Noah and the ark. They may know of some of these other, you know, stories out there. But they always set the word of God aside. Because it's not their worldview. It's not the vision that they see the world through. And that's what happened to Saul here. He had a worldview. He had the head knowledge. He knew of scripture. And he was forcing people to obey that law without a personal relationship. But now that he's transformed, he is seeing the world through the eyes of Christ. 
and it completely changes. And it should us too. Change the way we view the world, the way we see people. Don't forget that Jesus himself claimed this throughout his ministry, that he was the son of God. Matthew 26 says, and the high priest asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So that claim of unity with the father, it was known what that meant when somebody claimed to be the son of God. It's not saying that, well, I'm Cameron, my father is Lang, but I'm my own person. No, if I say I am the son of Lang, I am saying I am united with him. I am like him in everything that I am. And so if we spiritualize that, Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. By saying that in that era, I am God. It's not a term that lessens the divine nature of Christ. In its day, it was a unified identity with the one that you claim. When Jesus changes your life, you can't help but proclaim the good news about Jesus. That's what a disciple is. It's not just the follower of another teaching. Yes, it's a student. You need to learn from Jesus. But a disciple says, a follower of Christ is one that says, I'm going to follow his teaching, but I'm going to make it so much a part of my life that I'm going to do everything possible to live and be and speak just like the person I'm following. That's what a disciple is. That's why, as we'll learn and study, they were first called Christians in Antioch, meaning they were little Christ because they were trying to be like this Jesus. So it became or what was spoken as a, a slam, a, 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 a degrading term, we've taken on as, yeah, an identity. I am like Christ because Christ lives in me, speaks through me, moves through me. We are one in the same. Reminder, Jesus claimed he was the son of God and he was hated, persecuted, and killed for it. So here Saul is proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God and he's hated and now his life is being threatened. What comes with proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? The promise of hatred. But Jesus said, don't be surprised that they hate you because they hated me first. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. If you allow that to stop you from living a Christ-centered life, then evaluate who Jesus is to you. Is he truly God in the flesh? Does his spirit indwell within you? Because it should not stop you from doing what he's called you to do. Let's look at verses 26 through 31. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas 
took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So here now we see Saul make his way to Jerusalem. Now, what we read is that it's revealed that this is actually three years later. He spent three years in and around Damascus before he came to Jerusalem. We, we're, we're told that in Galatians chapter 1, kind of Paul speaking about his life gives us that time frame, that he spent three years in Damascus and then he went down to meet the disciples and he actually stayed in Jerusalem for about 15 days with Peter, lived with Peter during that time. So even though so much time had passed, there was still doubt as to the legitimacy of Saul's conversion. For a lot of us, can we identify with that? Seeing is believing. We as humans, we need that. We need that confirmation of the visual or the tangible in order to believe something, right? And so it goes with the rest of the disciples and the apostles. They just could not believe that this persecutor, this guy that just stood three years earlier and commissioned Stephen to death is now preaching in the name of Jesus. It's hard to believe. But it took one man. Like Ananias did, now Barnabas fulfills that role. It takes one man to go up to Saul and take him by the hand and lead him into the house. And that's exactly what he does. Barnabas shows love and friendship to Saul. He starts to build that bridge between Saul and the rest of the apostles and disciples. Let's not forget what we're told in John 13 by the very words of Jesus. Verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If seeing is believing, what is, what is it that is going to prove that we are followers of Christ? Our love for one another, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done. We're told in scripture that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate act of love. And yet, how often do we stop ourselves and look at the outside of somebody and go, hmm, no thanks. We do. We immediately judge by what we see. But we're also told in Scripture that man looks at the outward appearance. But thankfully, God sees the heart. We are to love one another. And Barnabas here is showing that love, visual love. By wrapping him up, I believe that Saul is forgiven. I believe that Saul is changed and transformed. He was preaching the gospel. It is not a trap. It, it wasn't a deception. 
That, hey, maybe if I just preach the gospel and sound like it, these Christians will come out, and then I could grab them, arrest them, and put them in prison and kill them? No, it wasn't that. Barnabas knew it was legit. He explains Saul's testimony to the other disciples and apostles. And Saul commits himself right in that moment to say, you may not believe me, but let me show you. And so he goes in and out throughout Jerusalem, preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And an amazing turn of events, what we read in verse 28, Saul, who had commissioned Stephen to death, in agreement, remember who Stephen was preaching to, who he was talking to? The very people Saul goes and talks to, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. So here he, at one point, he stood with them, giving them approval to stone Stephen to death because of what Stephen claimed. And now Saul comes around full circle, newfound faith in Christ. We're not told, but it's just a few years later, give or take, that Saul could have been looking in the very face of those he was siding with and now looking them in the face going, I was wrong. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You remember that man, Stephen, that you stoned? Well, he was right. And here I am proclaiming to you the good news of Jesus Christ. I now stand with Stephen and Jesus, the very people. So on the threat of death, because they stoned Stephen to death, they're not going to take this from Saul. And so they want to kill him. Saul catches wind of it, the others, and they send him away. But there's a little more to that story. In Acts 22, we're told that Saul had a vision. He says in Acts 22, 17, When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, and I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And down in verse 21, it says, And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So here God continues to speak to Saul, letting him know they're not going to accept you here. So I'm going to take you somewhere where you can be used. Are we, are we catching kind of what's going on here? Not only is it important to understand the importance of one obedient follower of Christ, but in every scenario thus far, there was danger involved. It was dangerous for Ananias to approach this persecutor of Christians sent by God. It was dangerous now for Saul to come back to Jerusalem and proclaim Christ because people are wanting him dead, both in Damascus and now in Jerusalem. Danger. So what God calls us to, there's going to be trials. There's going to be danger, but we continue to follow in obedience. Remember what Joseph said to his family? The end of that story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Paul would later speak in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, all things work together for good. Not good things work together for good. That's a given, but all things work together for good, the good, the bad, the ugly, work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose because God's will is greater than our own. 
quickly, let's look at again verse 31. It's important that we take advantage of every moment we get. The church in this time, Paul is sent away, and the church has a moment of peace. Now, does that mean the persecution had stopped? Not necessarily. Could have. But it could also have been encouraged by Saul, and that gave them the encouragement to carry on. Because what does it say about the church? They took advantage of the moment that even in times of trial or peace, they were renewing themselves in the Lord. Because the church was being built up. They were continuing to grow in numbers. The threat of persecution, the threat of Saul, whoever this guy was, to transform life, the confusion, we don't know, but we're going to continue to carry on and do what God calls us to do, whether we're in times of persecution or in times of peace. Don't let peaceful moments cause you to be content and drop your guard. A time of peace does not mean that you should stop following the Lord, that you should stop seeking his word and his will for your life. In trial, it forces you on your knees, doesn't it? Trial, hurt, pain, tragedy forces you on your knees to seek the Lord. But what about times of peace? We need to do the same and seek God always. Verses 32 through 43. Now we kind of have a a transition moment. Paul is going to disappear, or Saul is going to disappear from Scripture for a couple chapters. And we'll, we'll reintroduce him in chapter 11. Interestingly enough, because Barnabas goes to find him. But here we transition back to Peter. Now, it's kind of a weird transition. All of a sudden, all this about Saul and his conversion and his ministry, and then it just stops. When we transition back to Peter, who we are very familiar with. So we're going to take a a quick look at a couple stories of Peter's continuing ministry, and then we're going to bring it all together. Let's read verses 32 through the end of the chapter, 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda, or Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. How often we forget the importance of reaching just one person for the Lord. Whoever God sets before us, wherever God is taking us, 
We're told Peter is going here and there. He doesn't just settle himself in Jerusalem to oversee the church and, and do everything that he was doing, because that's what he had been doing, right? Establishing this early church. He had been correcting a lot of wrongs. He had, thousands were coming to salvation. He was feeding and providing for the community. He was commissioning leaders to correct any oversight. But here we see he's still an itinerant preacher. He still travels. He's still uh, fulfilling the commission that God had given them to proclaim the good news and preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And that's what he's doing. So here he's traveling and we see him take that God-ordained opportunity to reach just two specific people. Number one was Aeneas, bedridden, sick, paralyzed for about eight years, Scripture tells us. And Peter had done something like this before. If you remember in Acts chapter 3, he and uh, James were walking into the, the temple area and Peter uh, he came across a, a lame man, a beggar. And Peter looked at him and said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So this was not new territory for Peter. Christ gave him that power to heal the sick and to, and to provide for these miracles that were to happen to prove the existence of Christ and his power. But on both occasions, at the center of each miracle is the name Jesus Christ. Don't forget what we're told in Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Peter was not doing this to elevate himself. He was not doing it to bring attention to himself. Everything done was in the name of Jesus. But again, through the obedience of one, Peter carrying on his commission, the faithfulness of another in Aeneas, an entire town turns to God. The obedience of one and an entire town turns to God. Individual number two. We're told her name is Tabitha. Again, translated in Greek, it's Dorcas. But what, something specific about her life is it's mentioned about her that she was a disciple. She was a committed follower of Jesus and was fulfilling that commission in the gift that God had given her by reaching out to the poor and the widows. She was fulfilling that Proverbs 31 mentality. As we're told, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She was full of good works and charity. God used her life, and now God would use her death to bring others to life in Jesus' name. But in both cases, life is restored in Jesus' name. Now, Aeneas may not have been dead, but he received new life. Imagine what that did for him to be able to walk again, to, to have health and, and to be able to receive Christ and then actually be used and go and, and help proclaim the good news in his town in Lydda. But now the life of Tabitha is restored. But in both cases, it's restored in Jesus' name. And many believed because of the experience and the obedience of one person. For us here today, let's look to Scripture and what it reminds us of and how we're to live our life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, 
If you are a follower of Christ and you've submitted your life to him, you have received a gift. It doesn't say if you have received. As you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Listen, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Whatever God has for you. If you're an Ananias, Scripture tells us he does an amazing thing of obedience and then disappears from Scripture. Or if you're like a Paul, and all, basically, the majority of the New Testament is written because of his obedience. And is one, known as one of the greatest saints in, in all of Scripture and history. Doesn't matter the level of acclaim. It's all for the glory of God. So in bringing this all together, this is what I want to, I want us to understand why we cover all of these stories in one sitting today, Ananias, Saul, Peter, Aeneas, Tabitha. Individual testimonies of faithfulness, obedience, compassion, encouragement, hope, and life. Again, some are going to have a far-reaching impact in God's kingdom. The D.L. Moody's, the Billy Graham's. Others, never going to be mentioned again. It doesn't matter. Because we're not here for our glory. We're here to proclaim the good news of Jesus. You may just live a quiet, faithful life in a neighborhood ministry like Tabitha. Doing what God called her to do. She had a skill to, to make clothes. And she would go out and give those clothes away. And did you, did you hear when, when Peter arrived at the house... There were widows weeping because of the tremendous grief of losing somebody so important to them. And they were showing off the clothes that Tabitha had made for them. This is how important she was to us. She clothed us. She cared for us. You could sense the compassion and love Tabitha had for her community. Others might have to run for their lives under constant threat of death. I don't want to be one of those people. <laughs> but if that's what God has, then that's what God has. But the purpose is the same. Proclaiming the gospel to any and all. Every single one of these stories resulted in the name of Jesus being proclaimed. In verse 17, Ananias spoke to brother Saul, the Lord Jesus. In verse 20, Saul was going around Damascus immediately proclaiming Jesus. When Barnabas took him into the apostles, he said he was preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. In verse 31, we said the church was, was being built up by the Holy Spirit in the fear of the Lord. In verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, said Peter. And in verse 42, that it became known throughout Joppa that Tabitha was alive and many believed in the Lord who is at the center of everything that we do. The name of Jesus Christ. 